Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be back with you all. It has been probably six weeks since I released my last episode. So thank you all for just bearing with me. It has been a crazy last six weeks. Yesterday, I just turned in my final paper for my final assignment for my last class of my MDiv studies. So I am finished. I am graduating. I am done. Congratulations. It's been a long journey and I've been so grateful to take it all with you guys. So this week, um, we're talking about false hope. And this is a a sermonette that I put together for a class, and I wanted to look at Jeremiah 29. It's one of the most, you know, famous passages in the Bible. It contains Jeremiah 11, where it says, God says, I know the thoughts that I have for you uh, of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And I think this verse has been so meaningful for so many people, simply because it's like giving you the behind the scenes of your life might be falling apart, but there's hope beyond this moment. And I wanted to focus in on a specific aspect that might not be talked about. And it's looking at some of the just the misunderstandings we have when it comes to transformation. And when I say that word transformation, it's something I think all of you can relate to, right? Everyone here has gone on some journey. Uh, the holiday season is here and January 1st has come and everyone's going to be making their New Year's resolutions. And maybe it's going to be, you know, part of my resolution is to lose my holiday weight. Um, some For some other people, it might be I'm going to write that book that I've always wanted to write. I'm finally going to quit this job. I'm going to, you know, uh, climb that mountain. I'm going to do the thing that I never thought I could do. And when we embark upon these journeys of self-transformation, sometimes we have an unrealistic expectation of what that looks like. And unfortunately, I feel like churches are very guilty of this, right? The way that we use the gospel, the way that we sell hope has to do with a fast, fixed, quick process that might give a false expectation of what that journey really is going to look like. For those of you who would like to support me on Patreon, you can do so for as little as $5 a month. For those of you who are already supporting me on Patreon, you know who you are, and you guys are awesome, and I care so much about all of you. Uh, Each of you I've had uh, some type of personal conversation with. Because it's such a small audience, I tend to tackle topics that might be a little bit more, I don't know, something I wouldn't share with a more general audience, so that's kind of the benefit of being part of a smaller circle in that way. The title of this talk today is called False Hope, a survival guide to life-altering trauma. I recently ran across an article in the journal Psychological Science called The False Hope Syndrome, Unfulfilled Expectations of Self-Change. In it, Janet Pollavi and C. Peter Herman describe the cycle of failure when we give ourselves 
unrealistic expectations, faulty self-assessments, and inadequate tools for change. It says, why do people persist in attempting to change themselves despite repeated failure? Self-change is often perceived as unrealistically easy to achieve in an unreasonably short amount of time. Embarking on self-change attempts induces feelings of control and optimism that supersede the lessons of prior experience. Some sorts of self-change are feasible, but we must learn to distinguish between realistic and unrealistic self-change goals, between confidence and overconfidence, because overconfidence breeds false hope. Something that I'm guilty of is I am always looking to pursue self-improvement. Maybe it's our bank account, or maybe it's some defect in our character, or something we want to change about our appearance, or just some action that we've done and we've realized, wow, I can be a terrible human being. I never want to do that again. The great hope of the gospel is that it comes with this message of transformation, but sometimes it doesn't give you the fine print of what that actually looks like. For some, it was the words, believe and you shall be saved. For others, it was, keep the law and you shall be saved. But fast change often doesn't last very long. And I've been left with this lingering question, which is, do we have a realistic understanding of how rare lasting change is and what it takes to truly transform? While statistics vary, one study shows that 85% of addicts in recovery relapse in their first year after a 30-day inpatient treatment program. Some of the reasons they discovered were, one, withdrawal. Withdrawal symptoms can be awful, including cold sweats, restlessness, vomiting, insomnia, and a general feeling of unwellness that can last from 6 to 18 months, depending on the frequency of prior use. Anybody wanting to escape feeling terrible might be tempted to go into a relapse. Mental health. Often the addictions themselves are not the problem, but the underlying problems are undiagnosed mental health issues like anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress. In a world where healthcare is not always affordable, something that's easier to get your hands on might be alcohol or marijuana or other forms of street drugs that temporarily help alleviate a problem, but don't deal with the issues that are going to take a lifetime to resolve. Three, people. Whatever your choice of addiction is, you'll likely surround yourself with like-minded people who enjoy the same things that you do, and they keep this cycle going, making it difficult to be sober. Four, places. A person's habitat is based on their habit. So someone struggling with an addiction has to change the places they frequent that will likely cause them to be triggered and fall into a relapse. Five, things. This could be wine glasses clinking or a show that shows a lot of frequent drinking or a game that just reminds us of a former life. Six, poor self-care. Poor self-care sends the message that your well-being is not important. And consequently, you are not important. 
This includes things like diet that can affect mood and trigger relapse. Others include getting into a relationship and intimacy way too soon in ways that often mask the real issues that need to be dealt with. Other reasons include pride and overconfidence in the journey, boredom and isolation, which this COVID-19 pandemic has been a perfect breeding ground for, and finally, just uncomfortable emotions. So what distinguishes the gospel from just another self-help message? This is a question I've been asking myself since the pandemic. And this introverted and reflective period of time has allowed me to watch myself in ways that I haven't previously. Patterns of myself and cycles of my being, I've been able to observe them more closely. And I realize sometimes the problems we seek to solve are unable to be solved because we've misdiagnosed the issue. Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite, Shemaiah has prophesied unto you, and I have not sent him, and caused you to trust in a lie. This is how Jeremiah 29 ends with God having to correct the words of a prophet who gave a false diagnosis to Judah. This false prophet, along with another false prophet in the previous chapter, Hananiah, were prophesying to Judah that their captivity would be relatively short. Hananiah boldly proclaimed, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, and within two full years I will bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place. Five months later, this prophet died. In the following chapter, Jeremiah sends these words to Babylon, letting the exiles know that their time in Babylon shall indeed be very long, 70 years to be exact. It came with this warning, Do not let your prophets and your diviners deceive you, for they prophesy falsely in my name. After 70 years have come to pass, I will visit you and perform my good works towards you. Their time in Babylon was not going to be two years, but 70. This is an entire lifetime. The false prophets predicted fast change, and they were sorely mistaken. They predicted a quick fix, but the problem was going to be something they were going to deal with for the rest of their lives. The first step in any addiction recovery is to admit the truth. Now, many of you listening here might not struggle with alcohol dependency, so I hope we can just take the principles and draw from them what applies to our own lives. And the 12-step program for Alcoholics Anonymous, the truth is, one, we admit we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. When the disciples questioned Jesus, saying, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we're looking to follow the master, if we're looking to find Jesus, we know where to find him. We find him wherever truth is allowed to shine. We follow him when we follow after truth. And this way, we don't have to be afraid of truth 
because if we're willing to face the truth, there's already somebody there who's going to help us. When reading passages like Jeremiah 29, there's a temptation to read prophecy and focus on the numbers and the correlation to time, right? The 70 years might have to do with 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, beginning at the building and restoration of Jerusalem, etc. One key experience that can get lost in this pure approach of numbers is what the sentence of 70 years actually meant for the people who were living through the experience of an exile that would last a lifetime. Some events in life are life-changing. They alter the course of our reality for the rest of our lives. There are traumas in our life of which there is no bouncing back. There are parents who have lost children, children who have lost parents, and those who have endured physical and emotional injuries that are lifelong. There are some captivities that we do not recover from. Some losses which we experience, no amount of time can fix the grief that we feel. It is a sadness that we will carry with us to the grave, like the loss of a child. Captivities of this nature are essentially permanent. They are 70 years in Babylon. This life will pass and we will die in our captivity. So what do we do? What do we do with permanent grief that we carry with us? What do we do with lifelong injuries that forever affect and change the course of our futures? The first step, like any recovery program, is to admit the truth, right? As Jeremiah 29, 28 says, your exile will be long. Yahweh does not offer false hope to the exiles. They will spend the rest of their lives in exile. They will die in a foreign land. Sometimes I think our churches get this wrong, right? We want to inspire hope, and hope is sometimes correlated to quick change, something you can have access to right now, and it's very easy. This inspires a lot of optimism. This inspires a sense of rejuvenation, but it's not the truth. There are things that we carry with us, scars that might not ever heal, things that we have to learn to live with, life-altering events that will take us years of counseling to unravel. So this kind of truth-telling, not two years in Babylon and everything will be fine again, but 70 years for the rest of your life you will be dealing with this is the first step to real transformation. Now I get it. I'm someone who often likes to avoid labels, right? But I've started to doubt whether or not I'm doing myself a service when I use language that disconnects me from the former versions of myself. Phrases like, I'm a new person, or I'm no longer that person, or I've been made new. While, yes, it is important to celebrate our victories and acknowledge our progress and success, I don't want to lie to myself by creating a narrative that doesn't keep me accountable to all the versions of myself that I have been in the past and the challenges that I will have to continually acknowledge as I embark upon this journey of self-transformation. For example, I have to acknowledge that, for one, I have a morphed image of my own body. Therefore, I'm not the best judge when it comes to the amount of weight I need to lose. I have an unhealthy relationship with my body image, 
and with a scale. At one point, I went from weighing 145 to 98 pounds. And when I got to 98 pounds, I convinced myself, this is exactly who you're supposed to be. This is exactly what you're supposed to look like all along. Thank goodness you finally made it to your goal weight. And everyone else around me was like, honey, you are too skinny. So I had to learn that I might not be the best judge. And dealing with my own body dysmorphia is something that I have to continually work through. Another thing is, I'm a survivor of domestic violence, and whether I like it or not, I do have PTSD. And this PTSD might be triggered in very benign situations. So in situations where I might not be in danger, I might be triggered to feel that I am. This is something I'll have to work through for a very long time. These are my realities. These are the things that I have to live with for the rest of my life. And if I want transformation, it's not without the acknowledgement that these are huge issues. These are 70 years in Babylon type issues that I need to seek the support to get through because it's not going to be a quick fix. The first portion of Jeremiah 29 is, is God speaking to the new normal, sometimes the new tragic normal that these exiles are going through. And It says, essentially, get comfortable as much as you can with this new reality. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant vineyards and eat their produce. Jeremiah 29 is a fascinating insight on how to survive life-altering traumas. Regardless of reasons of why we might end up in captivity, Yahweh sends the exiles a new Ten Commandments. Just like Moses gave the Ten Commandments for how the people were to conduct their life with integrity and self-restraint in the land of excess flowing with milk and honey, Yahweh yet again provides a Ten Commandments for how to thrive in the land of their scarcity, of their captivity, saying, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. So how exactly do we do this? One, we have to give up the narratives that paint the story that we want to tell about ourselves, the Instagram version of ourselves, rather than the story of who we actually are. This is one single difference between the myths of the Greek gods and the Bible. The narratives of sacred history give an accurate detail of the history of that person. There's no mythologizing of David. Right? He was who he was in all of his glory and in all of his shame. And we have to have an honest conversation with ourselves if we want to see real change. In the article that I read earlier by Pallavi and Herman, they note, in order to replace false hopes with real hope, we must learn to determine accurately the difficulty of self-change, establish realistic goals, to keep our expectations reasonable, and to develop coping skills to help us contend with the setbacks that are normal with efforts to change. You will have setbacks, and these aren't reasons to get discouraged or to throw away the journey altogether. They are a normal part of the journey of self-transformation. 
The first command that God gives is to build. He says, build houses and dwell in them. Find stability. When trauma happens or at moments when we discover our faults and that we are a lot more flawed than we thought we were, our lives get overturned. Our realities become shifted and changed. The stories we've told ourselves about ourselves become challenged. Thus, the first step is to find acceptance with your new normal. And this usually doesn't happen on your own, right? We need therapists, support groups, and networks that can help us process our grief and find a livable amount of comfort in our new normal. Building houses and dwelling in them also includes making time for self-care. Our bodies are the vehicle with which we experience the world. And so if our bodies are not feeling well, there's no way for us to experience the world in a well way. And when we care for ourselves, we give ourselves the message that our life is still worth living and that we are uniquely valuable in what we have to share. Next, Yahweh invites us to plant vineyards and eat the fruit. In other words, begin upturning the soil of the land of your new normal. Understand the land. Understand the trauma. Understand your emotions and process that trauma. Enjoy the insights that you gain and the wisdom that you learn about yourself and the world around you. Invest in your new land. And this means investing in self-help books, investing in therapy, investing in those products that you need to take care of yourself and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Next, he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. In other words, be prolific. Don't be afraid to make covenants and join yourself to the community. Pass along the wisdom of your experience to others. Gain knowledge of yourself, of your trauma and how it's affected your life, and pass this knowledge on to the next generation. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, think intergenerationally. There may come days when all you wish to do is lay down and die. But God says he has a future and a hope for you. Do not let your story end with you. In fact, contemplate a future for yourself and for the generations after you. Think about your son's sons and your daughter's daughters, that you can begin to forecast yourself far into the future, that your journey doesn't stop here. Next, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. In other words, integrate yourself into the community. Be part of something larger than yourself. Invest in the schools and the city councils, the nonprofit organizations. Get to know your neighbors and offer your unique contribution to the public. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Once you've invested yourself in the people and in your community, you're going to learn to love your community and pray for them and their flaws. We are not called to be isolated from, but integrated into. We are not Lot fleeing from the wrath of the Lord in the day of judgment. We are Joseph praying for God's mercy and transformation in the midst of the city we have learned to love. Trauma and shame can dim the light that we shine into the world. In answer to the life-altering events of a lifelong captivity, God provides a survival guide to being whole again. Steps we can take toward healing 
and allow the lessons of our life to be of service to the communities in which we abide. As the holiday season approaches, it can be a difficult time of the year for many. For some, this is their first holiday without someone they love. This year might mark many firsts. Their first year after the loss of a parent, a loss of a relationship, a loss of a friend, or a family member. Years of memories that they have built celebrating holidays together now hold a bittersweet cloud of darkness in the absence of their loved ones. Yet God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a hope and a future. The absence of your loved one and the grief that you bear might feel so overwhelming sometimes that you just want to give up and die. The trauma that you've experienced might feel like more than you can handle. Yet for a brief moment, the master behind the veil is speaking to us, and he is revealing his mind, providing the assurance that there is hope. So my appeal to you today is is to not give up. One of my favorite quotes is from a man I never knew who has since passed, and it was the father of a dear friend of mine. And she recounts the story of how her father would tell her, daughter, life is a solitary journey lived out in solidarity. And I want to encourage you today to find that solidarity with those who share the same lived traumas that you have. True transformation cannot happen without a true understanding of the problem. We need support. And we need time. Some of the resources out there for those of you who would like to live out your life in solidarity, I want to encourage you to try BetterHelp.com. They are not a sponsor of the show, but I myself am a user of it. And it has provided therapy online from licensed experienced professionals for half the cost. Being a Christian is not about being invulnerable, invincible, or perfect, or relentlessly optimistic about the future. It's about being honest with our lifelong struggles. It's about being realistic in our assessments, cautious in our optimism for change, and surrounded by the support that we need to grow. Our journey is a 70-year journey in Babylon. Some of the things that we have dealt with, we will carry with us for the rest of our life. Transformation and self-change is not a short sprint. It is a long marathon. There will be setbacks. There will be cycles. There will be us revisiting things of the past. But do not get discouraged. This is all a part of the journey. Fast change doesn't usually last long. So let's buckle up, strap in, and get ready for a long ride. Life is a solitary journey. Let's live it out together today. Thanks so much, you all, for tuning in. I am so glad to be here with you all. I am so glad to be freed up from school so I can spend more time podcasting and conversating. For those of you who want to support this journey on Patreon, you can for $5 a month. I appreciate the contributions for everyone who has helped to make this podcast happen. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out to me on Instagram, feel free to do so. 
I look forward to talking with you soon and happy holidays.